Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're on episode 100, which I'm very pleased to say we've lasted this long. Jumping in and starting this podcast in October 2017, the plan was to follow the war as it wound its way through the next three years. We're now into year two, and this podcast series will wrap up at the same time as the Boer War, that is, next year May. I've tracked the incidents, events and issues throughout the war on a week-by-week basis, so we're now in August 1901. And as you heard last week, Breaker Morant and his murderous Bushville carboneers have been busy across the north of the Transvaal. In the Free State, hundreds of Boers are beginning to arrive close to the Cape Colony border, where they'll join up with General Jan Smuts, who has been riding from the Transvaal and plans an invasion into the colony. The winter temperatures begin to ease in August. South Africa's Haarfeldt, as I've explained, experiences quite bitter winters with below freezing conditions for most of June and July in the mornings. However, by mid to late August, winds begin to blow and the sun, which has been angled low in the north, starts rising earlier, setting later and warming everyone. Not a moment too soon. In the concentration camps now dotted around the interior, the death rate has been creeping upwards. There are now officially 100,000 Boer civilians, mostly women and children, who are incarcerated in these camps, with roughly another 30,000 black civilians at least, although some say the number was closer to 60,000. Lord Kitchener had published his infamous proclamation on August 7th, 1901, with an ultimatum to all the Boers, political and military leaders, from commandants down to the heads of what he called armed bands. Anyone who hadn't surrendered by the 15th of September would be exiled from South Africa forever. What's more, those who had families in the concentration camps would be forced to pay for their maintenance, which naturally meant their land and property would be seized. This would hit them where it hurt most, he thought. And of course, it would. But General Christian de Wett and other hardliners shrugged off Kitchener's threat. But there were other ideas beginning to float around at this time. Why shouldn't the British rid themselves of the Boers altogether? This has an ominous sound to it, doesn't it? Kitchener ran his idea of rounding up all the Boers, women, children, old, young from the camps, as well as the 20,000 men in prison of war camps overseas. Why not pack these people off to a new region? Fiji, perhaps, in the Pacific? As bizarre as the idea sounds, Kitchener was seriously entertaining this kind of intervention. He said the whole country would be safe and there would be plenty of room for new British colonists. Since the failure of the Middleburg peace talks earlier in 1901, his attitude towards the Boers had become increasingly severe. Last week we heard how Breaker Morant and Bulala Taylor and others had heard Lord Kitchener's complaints and understood his solutions included shoot prisoners. The shoot prisoners order never existed, but there was a tightening, a harshness. Kitchener wasn't the only person who espoused the idea of exiling all the Boers. Some were suggesting that all the Boers be sent to Madagascar, or German Southwest Africa, or maybe even to another continent. Willem Leitz had heard some of these wild plans before, but in August 1901, he was shocked when one of these wild plans came to him from a man by the name of Hiram Maxim. He was a 61-year-old American who had become naturalised as a British subject and one of the last people that Queen Victoria had bestowed a knighthood on before she died. The honour was conferred on Maxim as an inventor. He claimed to have invented the light bulb, that's debatable, but he had invented a number of machines, including the mousetrap, the merry-go-round and, terrifyingly, 
the machine gun. He gave his name to the Maxim gun, otherwise known as the pom-pom, which was responsible, along with the German Mauser, of dispensing carnage on the South African battlefield by the Boers. The fact that Maxim had sold his machine gun to the Boers, as well as the British, and led to the deaths of literally thousands of British troops, didn't stop the Queen from granting him a knighthood for a good idea. The letter he wrote to President Kruger, which was opened by Willem Leitz, who was Kruger's secretary, was of historical interest. Remember, both were living in Holland at the time. The man who invented both the machine gun and merry-go-round was suggesting a social merry-go-round of sorts. At the beginning of the letter, dated August 1901, Maxim professed to be well disposed towards the Boers. The Boers are Dutch, and like all Dutchmen, are the bravest of the brave, wrote Maxim. But bravery could not be sustained against numbers, which is what the British had, as Martin Bosenbrook describes in his book The Boer War, published in 2013. Maxim wrote to Kruger that because of the British being numerically superior, they were inevitably going to win the war. But there was a way out of this morass, said Maxim. He thought up a plan to protect the Boers, who he admired. There is something almost beautiful about Maxim, simple but horrific. He was a man of complete and utter logic. His clarity of thought and honesty in delivering these thoughts is mind-boggling. The terrible truth is that he was completely correct in his basic analysis. The British, by pure dint of their numerical and financial superiority, were going to win this war because they still wanted to win it. So what to do, thought Maxim. Simple, he said. The Boers were going to have to leave South Africa en masse to establish a new colony in the north of Mexico. The landscape and climate were comparable to the Transvaal for human habitation, and the potential for cattle raising was immense. Not only that, there was plenty of land for sale at that particular moment in northern Mexico. He had made inquiries. Of course, wrote Hiram Maxim, there would be costs involved, but of course the owners of the gold mines were quite willing to fund the whole enterprise. Maxim wrote that, Mexico would become a great country completely in the control of the descendants of the Boers. Imagine that letter arriving at the war office. He may have just received a knighthood, but the offer was not taken seriously. Maxim received a letter in exchange, which thanked him for his trouble, but that was that. His ulterior motives were obvious, however. He was putting what Bossenbrook calls new words to an old tune, buy out or buy off the Boer leaders. It was a bribe. Leitz was tired of this politics. He'd been ensconced in Holland while back in South Africa war raged. Then in stepped a malignant figure called Simon Zadox de Moerkerk, an unfortunate name in South Africa. On the 6th of August 1901, the financial advisor de Moerkerk arrived with a letter of introduction from a Berlin lawyer. Zadox was a Dutch national working in Paris, representing the most important banker in the city a certain Rothschild. There were many insinuations that followed, but the gist of that meeting was pretty clear. Bribery was at hand. Was Leitz going to take the money? The gist of the motivation was that the continuing state of war in South Africa was not only ruining the Boers, it was also costing the French financial world a fortune. Therefore, the French bankers were willing to make sacrifices to the Boers up to a point for their losses they had incurred. It was a blatant bribe. Take the money and stop fighting, Leitz said no. Back in South Africa, General Jan Smuts and his men were on the move. 
It would only be in early September that the actual invasion of the Cape began, but prior to this, there was a sudden surge in British troop movements and action both inside the Free State and in the Cape. We've heard about Douglas Haig, the son of the owner of the most famous whiskey of the time, who was in the Free State trying to hunt down General Christian de Vett, as well as roving bands of rebels and Boers. Operating across 100 miles of country south of Nauport and 50 miles on the other side of the railway line, Haig was scouring 10,000 square miles of mostly mountainous territory that was rapidly heating up again as the winter faded. Arraigned against Haig and his moving columns were Boers of all sorts, some who would ride 50 miles in a single day to pass on messages to the various commandos that were operating in this region. By June, Lord Kitchener had appointed General French in military command of the entire Cape Colony. This vast area is diverse. In the southwest around Cape Town, the climate is very much like the area around San Francisco. It's Mediterranean with wet winters and dry summers. Moving to the east, the coastal regions rapidly turned from a mixed climate to summer rainfall with temperate forests and thick bushy ravines. To the north is the desert and semi-desert known as the Karoo. This makes it extremely difficult to manage all regions simultaneously as a military commander. The blockhouse system was now in full swing. These brick and stone mini monuments to the ongoing Boer War were dotted along the entire railway line between Cape Town and Pretoria, more than 1,000 miles of construction. There were now 6,000 men under French's command in the Cape, many living inside these blockhouses, which had sprung up in each dusty dorp. By August, French was launching full-scale drives close to the Free State border and in the Klein Karoo around Graf Renet, one of these semi-desert areas. And it was from near Desolation Valley, close to Graf Renet, inhabited only by wild animals like baboons, that Boer Skippers launched his own mini-attack on the Cape. Skippers and a few hundred men rode south to Willowmore from where he could literally strike Cape Town itself. The defensive network the British had built was too well constructed, so Skippers then turned north and set fire to British loyalist homes and villages as he passed. He looted as he went, replenishing the commander, and then assaulted a Standard Bank manager who refused to hand over government funds. He had him lashed. Not quite warfare, not quite gangsterism. Skippers was taking a chance as he was a Cape-born Boer, but claimed he'd been naturalized as a Free Stater. Commander Lotter led another small group, but they were nabbed by British troops. Their story is of interest for a few reasons. For one, they attacked an armoured train travelling on the line to Cape Town at night, and that train had an extremely powerful searchlight on board. A mounted column saw this light, which beat out a signal about the location of the Boers, who did not know that a column was nearby. Lotter and his men retreated, and then late at night settled down for a nap. It was there that the mounted column caught up to the Boers just before dawn. Two of Lotter's lieutenants were executed. Many others were sent to prison of war camps around the world. Then Lotter was put on a show trial. He claimed that his free state citizenship meant he was no longer a Cape resident, and therefore he was not British. Remember that the Cape Afrikaners were being treated as traitors and regarded by the empire as treasonous spies rather than proper soldiers. He was also found guilty of murdering two black scouts and of treason and of lashing British subjects, the Standard Bank manager for one, as well as blowing up trains. He was then transported to Graf Renet, back to where he started, where local residents were ordered into the main square. 
There, the charges were read out for all townsfolk to hear, both British and Boer supporters. The next day, he was marched out of town to a copy that was clearly visible and then executed by a firing squad. Kitchener's new hardline position was in evidence. More than half a dozen other executions took place in the town over the next few months, all witnessed by a shocked population, which was a warning to all that the British were deadly serious about their policy of finishing off this war as quickly as possible. After a few more public executions, Kitchener ordered them halted. The point had been made. Executions actually continued, but they were no longer in public. The Boers who witnessed these events were embittered, as in some cases, family had been present. The circle of violence was not broken. All that happened was that when word went out of these incidents, Transvaal and Free State Boers were more convinced than ever that they needed to invade the Cape and teach the British another lesson. Meanwhile, the Fawcett Commission, which was the woman-led expedition set up by the British government to assess conditions in the concentration camps, had been indulging on its national tours since the beginning of August. They steamed up and down the felt in their special second-class train. This group, as we heard, were somewhat biased against the Boers, but were all specialists of some sort in health. They had one important qualification. All believed that the war against the Boers was just, and that meant certain unpleasant measures aimed at the civilians. They also believed these unpleasant measures, which included the concentration camps, would remain in place until the end of the war. So this was the main difference between them and Eberly Hobhouse, who was busy at this point, as we know, in England, trying to rouse the public there to turn against the camps where thousands of women and children were dying. They were a diverse band of women on board this train, led by Miss Millicent Fawcett, the lady chairman, who was a liberal unionist and an avowed feminist. She was also the leader of the women's suffragette movement. So while we can be critical of her when it comes to the Boer War, you can see there was some tension between her and the military commanders she was going to come across. They were steeped in the manly man world of a war on the felt, and here was a woman in a bonnet coming to inspect their camps. Another member was Lady Knox, who was hardly neutral, as she was the wife of Lord Kitchener's command member, Major General Sir William Knox. The four others were all in the medical field, including a nurse from a local hospital, as well as two women doctors who were living in South Africa. One of these, by the way, ended up marrying a camp official during the tour, so we can see they were hardly operating in a neutral manner. Still, as we'll hear in two months' time when they were done, their report amazingly almost echoed Hobhouse in many respects. But by then, many more had died, and matters were changing on the military front as well. As we'll hear in mid-September, their initial report was going to shock Broderick, the War Secretary, back in London. But we must now halt and water the horses. Next week, we'll hear more from Denise Rates and his little group, who are about to travel off to meet with other Boers who are planning to invade the Cape. And these Boers will include Jan Smuts. Things are warming up again in this war. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, or send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham, or through the website abwarpodcast.com. So until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.